everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Sven Ackerman Jr. Hey, good morning, everyone. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick, let people know who you are, why you're well-known, all that stuff? Sure. Thank you, Chuck. Uh, my name is Sven Ackerman Jr. Um, I appreciate you having me on the show. I'm the chief architect at Outlook Insight. We're a consulting firm based out of Olympia, Washington, really specializing in uh, Microsoft Azure adoption and solution architecture, as well as like technical operation management. Historically, in my previous role, I was the engineering director for nearly 10 years and chief technology officer for the previous five at a private software company where we built uh, the number one vocational rehabilitation case management software product in the United States. We serve about 12,000 users per day across 38 states, which helps to serve nearly a a million Americans with disabilities each year, helping them to get back to work. It's a pretty cool mission. In that time, we grew as teams and we accomplished great things. We won Microsoft uh, Partner of the Year back to back in 2016 and 2017, including Digital Transformation Partner of the Year for state and local government, and uh, have been taking great teams and uh, doing great things with it. Nice. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. We're going to be talking a little bit more about kind of the process behind development and agile development and things like that, which you have a ton of experience with. I think when we talked before, also, you mentioned that you've been uh, doing a bunch of training for, you know, small groups of developers and things like that and helping people build their careers and stuff like that as well. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, for gosh, for a a couple of decades, I've been involved with educating teams as as just a senior consultant, then, of course, in a in a, in a management role. Most recently, you know, once I decided to shift my focus and really focus on, on cloud concepts and cloud adoption, I decided to take the knowledge that I had acquired over the, the previous 15 years or so and just prove my knowledge. So I went out and started to test and see, you know, where, where were the gaps? Where could we fill them in? I did that through um, uh, like Microsoft certification primarily, where um, I now hold five certifications with Microsoft, including Solution Architect Expert. Um, I'm a certified trainer have, you know, a few others um, at the associate level. And I've been then taking that body of knowledge and starting to actually hold formal classes, getting other people uh, prepared for certification exams, uh, teaching them some of the finer points of uh, how to relate to the content that comes in exam prep to the practical reality that you're going to see on the floors or see when you're actually doing your work. Nice. In kind of our pre-call, you were talking about the process that uh, you went through in order to make the software development process at your previous employer better. You want to just kind of give us that elevator pitch again and, and explain, you know, where you started and where you got to? Yeah, sure. So when I, when I first joined uh, that company, uh, they had recently adopted a, a Scrum Agile process. I mean, it was, it was formalized. You know, we had a, a formal Scrum Master, really rigid about the, the Agile process, almost too academic at times, but it was a, a great place to start. And it was a vastly improved process over where had, they had been previously with more of that, that waterfall, you know, um, three to six month um, planning and, and execution phase. And so we took that, uh, that those, those humble beginnings and exercised them for about five years. And um, over those five years, you know, it, it was working okay. I mean, we were doing good things, producing good software. You know, teams were doing all right, I'll say, sometimes better than others. We got to a point where we realized that there were still some uh, still some gaps. You know, we were, you know, when you when you look at uh, you know first the teams that are doing the work, you know, you have to ask yourself, are they happy? Is, is the pace working well for them as well as it's working for the organization? I and mean, if there are gaps there, you know, what 
what are they and what's contributing to uh, uh, to that. Second is is when we looked at you know what specifically was happening within our process, um, being a, a commercial software vendor, we had a lot of process. You know, we were uh, dedicated to you know so. There may be a part of the manifesto that says, you know, favor working product over comprehensive documentation. Well, when you're in the commercial space, you have to provide comprehensive documentation back because you're informing a very large user base about how things work that weren't necessarily a part of the process of of the evolution. So we had things like that that had to be taken into consideration in our design and development process. All of that adds a little bit of time, and with uh, with every every new player that you introduce, they bring a different perspective. So those are some of the challenges that we were, you know, just just asking ourselves, are we doing this right? Is it efficient? And do we have opportunities to improve? And so where were some of the improvement opportunities that you guys found? So in terms of opportunities that uh, that, that we discovered, um, uh, first important question is, uh, how do you discover these things? You know, <laughs> how do you how do you know that you have a problem or how do you know you have an opportunity? You know, I like to think of, uh, you know, what are our pains, those things that, that hurt that we want to get rid of? What are those things that make us happy and to amplify or make more of those opportunities for us? So the first thing was, uh, you know, understanding, you know, the, uh, those key performance indicators that were predictive of uh, sending us on the right path. You know, so if you start to look at just turn time of items, you know, how long does it take to uh, get an item from, from the idea that a customer is going to buy? all the way through to delivering that value to the customer in the end. That's one measure. I mean, we broke that down a couple of different ways. One was, you know, for every day that we estimate it's going to take to actually produce the, um, uh, the value, how many calendar days does it take to actually um, uh, pull that through? We also looked at, you know, quality metrics. Unplanned work is the devil in any shop, you know, and every time you have... <laughs> When you have a defect, I don't care when you find it, uh, earlier is better. Find it as a developer, awesome. Find it as a tester, less awesome. Find it as a customer, not so awesome at all, right? So, you know, there's, there's, there's that timing, but the cost associated with um, having to stop the presses to go back and, and readdress work was one of those measures that was important to, to keep in mind. And then, of course, you know, there's, there's just that constant evolution and improvement of the product that we, that we always wanted to make. So, a couple of different ways that we, uh, we we chose to measure the effect of what we were producing. And with that, you know, we came up and we, we discovered that, wow, for every estimated day of work that we were producing, it would take upwards of, you know, seven calendar days to actually deliver that value and actually finish that work. We didn't judge the number. We just, you know, accepted that we had measured it. Then we sat down and we asked the question, well, is this good enough? Is this as good as it can be? And and in the end, it was, it was just a resounding. No, we 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 think we can do we can do better. Does that answer Does that answer your question, Dave? Yeah. So I'm just kind of thinking of it. So from a waterfall design, your release schedule might look like you might release something every six months or every year if you're lucky, because there's just so much time that goes into developing all the features in one big bulk and then deliver it. But in the Scrum or Agile methodology, you're doing it more in iterations. So you might have 10 releases a year, you know, even more. But then you had mentioned in the pre-talk, the single or the one-piece flow, the single-piece flow. Can you talk about that, what it is, and how that plays an important role in the efficiency of the team? Yeah, that sounded really interesting. The idea is to ensure that you are focused on one thing start to finish before moving on to other things. Okay, so that's at a very high level. Now, why is that important? What what does that get us? In terms of of a team productivity, uh, the first thing that it, it helps to reduce is the context switching that is natural in our line of business. So earlier I talked about, you know, uh, you develop something, you send it through to QA, you know, some days or so later, an item or an, an issue is found, you have to come back to that item. Well, coming back to that item from a developer's perspective, you got to take your head out of what you're in. You got to get ramped back up into the context of the, the item that you had produced earlier to well, resolve it. And then when you're done resolving it, you have to then spin back the opposite way and get back into the work you were doing. It becomes exponential with the number of items that you have in play, the negative effect it has in terms of a, a focus and just time working on producing value. So that was one thing that uh, that was uh, that, that we were targeting. The second thing was 
just the, the group involvement and, and the group knowledge necessary to produce software was really one of those things where, you know, uh, historically the analysts would uh, go out, work with customers to, to refine the requirements into a specification. Uh, developers produce the spec, testers test to the spec, and then, you know, out, out it goes. The problem is, is that, you know, every perspective has its own uh, line of sight to the solution. So an analyst does a great job producing, you know, wonderful specifications. The developer has a different idea, different thoughts, different approaches. And uh, when those are, uh, are addressed later, you're now having to second guess the original design that could have to go back to the customer. And it just turns into a vicious cycle. So we were like, okay. How can we compact all this down and perhaps slow the, slow the actual number of items coming through so that we could deliver something a little bit faster with, uh, while reducing all of these switches? And we believe that that would be predictive of improving our overall output and quality. And these aren't concepts that, that we made up. You know, there's, there's things like the Toyota Way, a great book uh, that, was, that was published called the, the Phoenix Project, which was just kind of a fun story about the transformation and understanding of, of how to get to this single piece flow model, we leveraged those. We, we took those as a playbook and we decided uh, we put out a major release, which we would put out a couple major releases per year. We shifted gears and said, all right, we're going to pick one thing. And all five or six of you per team, right? we had a couple of, couple of analysts, a couple of developers, a couple of testers. You guys are going to work together, talk with the customer, produce the uh, designs, and see if we can make a difference. Um, I'll tell you that the shift, uh, it wasn't easy. That purest view of one thing flowing does not work at production scale for uh, like a competitive software company. It was a way of, of us all, you know, sh- kind of shifting our belief of what was important. And, and all of the team members learned during the, those initial um, uh, few months on what was important to ask how to approach things. And we ultimately got down to where a single piece flow in our environment with the way that we operated really resulted in a maximum of three possible items um, in play at a time, really two only, only two ever having focus. So um, again, you, you, you've got time when you're waiting for answers from customers, things like that. Those were what was actually killing us in the beginning. So you have to like deal with that slack time. But yeah, that's the idea behind the single piece flow is just get that piece of work, get eyes on it all at the same time to where all inputs can be captured, gathered, Development is happening during the design phase and, and the, tests, uh, the test scripts, test suites, the uh, automation is all being developed all in parallel as opposed to serially going down the road. So I'm looking at this process and you said that, A, it's not really completely realistic for a production moving software team. So how did that work? Like, how did you get all of the eyeballs in on the, the project so that, you know, it, it had the proper amount of focus and things like that? Well, that, it started with the stroke of a pen. It's like, here's what we're going to do. And it, it wasn't something that was uh, uh, divined by anyone. I actually pulled all of all the technical managers from a, a, across my, my organization together, kind of introduced some of the challenges that I was seeing, got their input. And uh, again, we all agree that there, was, that there was an issue. The actual initiation, starting it off, that was a, okay, at the end of this release, Here's what the model that we're going to, and we we announced this weeks ahead of the the release, so the teams were able to, you know, we we provided a lot of information that they could go research, so they could be familiar with where we had gone for the previous, you know, four months or so while we were designing this uh, this this switch. So by the time uh, it it came into place, it was it was interesting. There was there was a lot of kind of sitting around twiddling thumbs, wondering what am I supposed to do? Right, you're not used to being a part of something that you know, and you're not part of that uh, design phase. Yeah, it's something that you have to adapt to, and it, that that took its own time. But uh, yeah, it, it all just started with um, a plan in the beginning and uh, calling it out that that's what we're going to do. And I can see that working well in a company that kind of has the correct foot off the ground. So they have good unit tests, they have a good delivery pattern, they have a good environment where changes can constantly be deployed to. So. Kind of my first thought is where a good tool to help promote that would be Kubernetes. So I'm working on a feature. As I'm developing that feature, I finish it up, getting everyone's feedback along the process. But then we want to really have it ironed out and tested in a QA environment or a QA-like environment as soon as it passes all the unit tests, which hopefully don't take hours to run. But 
that gets pushed up to our version control system. The version control system then pushes out to Kubernetes a mock environment with that new feature. So as soon as that environment's live, you can test out that feature, make sure that it is working properly, and then you can destroy that environment and then move on or have a next stage in your CD pipeline to then deploy that feature. So I could see, you know, that working well to some degree or have it have that feature scheduled out to be deployed. But I think we're a long ways away from that for a lot of companies that do not put in the effort to really iron down their infrastructure to be able to support this kind of methodology. I couldn't agree more. I, it takes a very well orchestrated delivery pipeline in order to facilitate anything that's going to move this quick. So whether you, you know, whether you're going to be um, wrapping up the solution in, you know, a cluster, or if you're going to be just going to a fully automated pipeline through DevOps or something like that, the ability to, you know, quickly move the work from discipline to discipline in a non-destructive way definitely takes, uh, it takes, takes a really sound delivery pipeline. So our pipeline was a, uh, we, we used Team Foundation Server. We had, you know, our, our regular incremental builds. We had, you know, our, our check-in policies, things like that being applied in terms of, uh, of, of automation, automation validation before uh, commit, things like that. So yeah, there's, there, there's def, definitely some foundational elements that, that helped us along the way. But even if you look at the, the simplest of teams, so, you know, again, it, that's still a very siloed way of looking at it. Oh, it moves from point A to point B to point C. Well, what if you condense all that up and you really just break that down into two phases? We're completing the value and then we will do a final, uh, final uh, QA integration test when we're all done. All right, so now we're just talking about two moving parts in there. That was really what we were looking to do to where instead of, you know, developer developers on their machine and then they check in the code and then uh, that code gets, gets, you know, has a unit test applied. And, you know, when all that passes, it gets committed and then the build goes out and then it gets dropped to a lab. And in that lab, the QA people go and do their thing with all eyes at the same point in time, looking at the same thing, we were able to really shrink a lot of that down and say, okay, well, before we go through all this, you know, formal deployment process and we were able to, to take a lot of input early on and really reserve the, the follow-on activities to only happen when the whole team said we're done, right? And so once that happened, then it goes into your final, you know, integration testing, um, you know, get, ex- exercising all those, all those uh, uh, final test plans and things like that to the, uh, the completed work. So yeah, I, uh, definitely there, there are some things that can really help you out, you know, and, and, Mind you, legacy applications have their own challenges. I think uh, anybody that's building up something new will have a, an easier time. If you look at you know just the the whole Azure DevOps model, what we accomplished in our legacy application is really what they're aiming to accomplish with DevOps, which is really just you know minimize the time to value delivery, mm-hmm. you know by collapsing the operations and the development into you know one functional discipline. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, it almost seems like it's kind of going back to just a single developer kind of shop. In the sense that if I'm a single developer working on a single product, and if I have 10 different features I want to do, I'm not going to do all 10 different features and then ship. I'm going to work on this one new feature, and then I'm going to do all my checks and balances. Then I'm going to deploy it. Then I'm going to go on to the next feature, something like that. So it seems like we are we've kind of gone from you know these small out of the garage dev shops to these huge enterprise models and then now we're back to the small dev shops or you know the small garage shops with a single piece flow model. And it's just kind of funny to see that kind of transition, you know, to say like almost like wow, we really didn't have things so wrong in the first place. I never, ever really thought about it that way, but hearing it, hearing somebody else say it, it is reminiscent of that, you know, back, back in the good old days, you know, let's, let's go back to, you know, the, I don't know, dare I say the, the mid to late nineties, right? Where developers were scarce and you were kind of having to do everything. You didn't have a team of analysts and testers. You produced code, you deployed it and you owned it. That's very much what, uh, what, what we accomplished, but with a team perspective to it. So that's, that's really the improvement on that model is that, 
you know, instead of having one perspective coming into that one piece of work, you have multiple disciplines weighing in at the same time with it, which does have the effect of really just saying, we're going to do one thing, we're going to get it knocked out. And when we're done, we move on and, and off we go. I love that, Dave. That was great. So one thing that I'm wondering about, because you did mention that, you know, you want everybody focused on the same thing at the same time. Let's say that I get everybody to come in and focus, but it turns out that, you know, I'm in a position where, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot to do after the, you know, the initial thing, you know, you, you, you don't want me to sit there and spin my wheels, waste my time for the next thing to come up. So do you just find me other things to do related to that focus? Or do you allow me to move on to the next thing? Uh, well, as, as much as I, I believe I would have liked to just let everyone relax a little bit, you know, um, find some time for just, you know, creative self-value growth, uh, whatever. Hey, you know, it's a, it's a space where we have uh, commitments to customers. We've got to get things right. out the door. So we really didn't have the luxury of, of, of downtime for anyone. And that was part of those initial pains I was discussing of, of just kind of tuning the model to where, okay, what is the least amount of work that we can have going on that, that still will result in reducing those negative characteristics? Some things that we saw, like, like for example, one of the, uh, uh, the metrics that, that we captured was you know, improvement to our code base. Sure, uh, at any point, the process still works through. You have your, your design, your dev, your test, right? And it goes in that order. Well, the lion's share of work falls on, you know, various team members. So everyone's contributing, but, you know, everyone's got their functional job to do. When our developers had a little bit of downtime, uh, they were able to go out there and pick up, you know, some, uh, some areas that uh, were, were ripe for improvement. And they were able to go out there and, and, and make those improvements. Our testers were able to go out and, uh, you know, validate things that they wouldn't otherwise have time to do. Because remember, historically, 100% of their time was in just building what they have to build. And so by those little windows showing up, uh, that's where the, those gaps got filled in was, was really opportunistic and uh, surprisingly big value came out of it. I mean, I was, I'm still astounded, you know, still to this day when I, when I, when I think about the unanticipated value that we got by just slowing down the team where we were producing more with happier people and, and creating more value for our customer on top of what we thought we were going to deliver. And building or destroying relationships at the same time, depending on how the teams are meshing together. You know, one thought about this is if people were servers or if development teams were computers, this is almost sounding like a scaling up vertically versus scaling horizontally. Now having more people working on separate bugs than to have everything in one server doing everything. So it's kind of interesting, but I guess... One thought that I had around this was, how does it scale? So are you going to be able to scale this out so you have maybe five different teams working on the mm -hmm. same project on five different bugs or features with their own uh, BA, their own QA person, and one or two developers? Because it's almost kind of like pure programming. So that's like the first question on how does this scale with multiple questions? or multiple stories. Then the second question is, well, answer the first one. I'll try to remember what the second one was. <laughs> yeah, sure. So we did have multiple teams working on one large enterprise product. So on that product, there were, you know, we, we would take requirements from new customers, um, enhancements from uh, existing customers, and we had a, uh, a steady stream, a steady pipeline of, of demand coming from them. So in terms of scaling, the first came down with just team composition. You know, you have to have enough people um, in those disciplines. And we really aimed to eliminate single points of failure on any team. So when I say we had a pair of developers and a pair of testers, a pair of analysts, uh, the intent was to have um, overlap between them. That introduced a certain amount of, uh, well, I don't want to call it waste, but, you know, it's, I don't know, it's a trade-off. I'll call, I'll just say there's a trade-off there where, when you have multiple people working on the same thing, Let, let's look at two, two developers, you know, just doing some paired programming. Paired programming, it's not like one's looking over the other shoulder at all times. Uh, you're both working on different aspects of the same solution. And then you're getting together and you're com comparing your, your, your code, you're integrating together, you know, just kind of constantly. That same thing would happen with, uh, with our analysts and testers. And, and really our, 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 tester, um, our, our, our tester strength 
that's the the one discipline where we we struggled the most to have paired on one project, right? Because you know one tester can really serve the need for multiple. So we really had a you know we'd have um, a couple of testers that would float between all of our teams, and then every team would have their own dedicated tester. So depending upon you know the kinds of resources, the, the number of resources you have, you would compose your team, you know, however that makes sense to you. But in terms of scaling it, it's just a matter of making sure you have the um, the right count of roles represented within each team, so that you could continue to replay that that same recipe over and over. And we found it worked really well. You know, we we would spin up uh, actually we we'd uh, spin up teams uh, across the country. We had teams out in. East Coast, some that were uh, South Central, some up in the Pacific Northwest. So even geographically displaced teams where you had, you know, some developers and well, developers didn't necessarily have to sit next to each other. Not in today's day and age. They would just, you know, jump on a, a Teams meeting or a Skype meeting, whatever, and do their thing. So we, we found it actually it actually worked really well. But you do have to have, to have that um, that base of resources available to compose the team that way. Gotcha. And yeah, you've inadvertently answered my second question, and that was whether or not this methodology was more pro-office or if it was remote-friendly. And it sounds like it can work remotely. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, anything that doesn't work remotely these days really needs to be rethought. I mean, it's it's too hard for people to, to move around and to get into one location. I mean, I just look at my geography here. If I was to have to visit an office up in Seattle, I would literally spend four hours per day in traffic. That's just not acceptable. I <laughs> think about the loss there. So we've got to have solutions for team composition that um, that really um, takes advantage of the ability to telecommute and uh, to be able to work together effectively as a team. But that also means a good quality telepresence. You know, um, video was heavily used, uh, uh, constantly connected. You know, via you know chat and and those other collaboration tools. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want, so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. So with any process, there's no smoking gun and there's never a perfect solution. So what were some of the drawbacks that had been seen in this methodology? There are initial drawbacks or initial concerns. I guess I can speak to those. And then we can we can speak to you know kind of downstream. Uh, were there any negative effects? I I think is what you're asking. Initially, there was a big psychological barrier to to overcome. You know, this is just human psychology where you know you you work a certain way and you do that for you know a decade or two, and to believe that this novel or this new approach is actually something that's worthwhile. That just took some uh, some some time and proving to to themselves and through and through the numbers, you know. And so you have to produce a certain amount of of work before you get any new uh, new numbers. So there are always lag indicators, right? On on how did we do? But looking at those lag indicators, when the team started to see, there are two things that they would see. One is, wow, productivity did go up, and it didn't feel like it, right? So they they were feeling like, wow, we actually did more, and it didn't feel like I had to do more for it. That was the first, the first thing that was uh, perceived to be an issue. See, everybody thought that by slowing down, you know, we weren't going to make our deadlines and we had never missed a deadline in the 10 years I was there. We weren't going to be able to get around to the important things that we wanted to do because we wouldn't have time. So we were wasting it sitting around. Things like that, where, you know, these were the concerns coming in. But in effect, actually, that it, it did prove true that by switching it up, they were able to overcome that. Looking at downstream, so after the fact, if I if I if I think back to what all we went through and where we landed, so now this is a retrospective view on a, about three years of evolution of that of this process. 
I'm struggling to to think of anything that went that where where the indicator went the wrong way. Like I say it was it was a a really simple shift that didn't change a lot of variables. It just changed the mode of execution. So there, like I say we didn't we didn't like disrupt the world. All we did is we said we're going to do what we do, but we're going to do it one at a time, and that means everyone needs to be involved at the same time. I don't know. I'm I'm struggling with that one. I would I would have to do a little bit more recon to to get you a. A real, I'd, I'd I'd have to talk to my technical managers to find out what they <laughs> thought about it. Because from my executive view, it was, uh, yeah, we we just didn't see that in any of the numbers that we were measuring. So it's it's hard for me. Yeah, you know, from my perspective, not having tried it out yet, but just thinking where I might have some drawbacks is that I do really good with just getting tunnel vision, where I'm given my list of requirements and I can just put my headphones on and just go heads down into the code. And sometimes, or most of the time, you know, kind of get what we were after. But I feel like in a peer slash single piece flow, that would get slowed down a bit. So you might not get as much developer efficiency, even though you're delivering more content, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I believe me, I, I, I really appreciate the value of being able to just throw on some headphones and just cranking it out uh, to where, you know, you almost feel like you're in a 3D model with the, with the things that you're looking at, right? You feel like you're in a, you're in a thing, you're not doing a thing. If you look at the normal breakup that happens uh, with, the, with the Agile process, um, you have your ceremonies, right? You have your daily stand-up, quick 15 minutes, uh, you know, what I accomplished yesterday, what am I going to accomplish today, what, what's in my way? Those meetings, uh, by and large, got simply repurposed into team review, team planning, where everyone's opinions came together. Remember, everybody has their body of work to produce as they're uh, in their own discipline. So instead of talking about what did I do and what am I going to do and what is in my way, the team would talk about, okay, where did we get? Where are we going today? And what do we need to get out of our way? All right. So it went from a me to an us kind of a conversation. Mm-hmm. So basically that retrospect or not the retrospective, but that, that standup turned into a group think instead of an individual report. And then the teams would disseminate, go back, sit down at their desk, and they would pound out their, their parts, right? They, they'd capture the feedback. And sometimes those meetings would go a little bit longer. It's like, hey, you know, one thing in, in our way is we don't have consensus on, on the, how this one feature is going to work. So let's let's take a little bit of additional time now. Let's get that clarity and then bring that clarity back to our desk and actually execute it. So in some ways, I think our teams were afforded more of that personal time to actually focus on their work because, uh, again, everybody was intimately aware of everyone else's work. It wasn't this disconnected, well, you do this, you do that, and you do the other thing. Right. How do you instill that mindset into a team? When you say mindset, can you clarify, Chuck? So for example, I've worked in a lot of places where we had the stand up and it was just the report, right? Or, you know, we'd have the agile ret- retrospective and it was essentially everyone would present their agenda and we would try and, you know, make progress. And you're talking about this is a much more collaborative thing where people are actually showing up and talking about their part of the overall goal and everybody's bought in and moving ahead. And I've seen some people do that well and some people really struggle with it. So how do you instill that into people so that when you have the stand-up, it's not the, well, I did this and I'm stuck on this and blah, blah, blah. And instead it's, hey, we're all working toward you know this one thing. This is our focus right now. And this is how I'm going to implement today. In terms of getting the, uh, the individuals to shift the way that they think about what they're producing, we really didn't have to do anything managerially to help that along. We just had to enforce the constraints that Everyone has the same focus and it just starts with that. Okay. So once everyone is talking about the same thing, when you hear somebody else talking about your exact thing, or so let's, let's say we're going to build a feature that's going to produce, I'll, I'll say something, something simple like a report. Think about the report. You know, you've got the, the data back end. You have your SQL queries to actually get the, the data sources. You've got the designers. How's this going to look? How's it going to be consumed by the customer? Where do we need to pr- present these different elements? And then from a tester's perspective, well, how do I ensure that all these things are being met at the same time? When you have that, everybody talking about that one outcome that is, is, uh, uh, is being produced, everybody's report is related to everyone else's. 
Okay, so directly related. So designer will will come in and say, okay, remember yesterday when we when we sat down and we we spent a half an hour on the phone with the customer and they said X, Y, and Z, and I was going to go research that. Meanwhile, the developer's like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and I I know this the you know the the, the stub query that I'm going to produce, and then I'll just you know add on to that when we get more clarification of uh, other details. And meanwhile, the tester is over there developing their their testing scripts to to validate. When they come together the next day, the analyst or designer would then be able to report on, um, okay, so yesterday I said I was going to find this. Here's what that uncovered. And that starts a quick dialogue with the developer. Okay, so you found these things. Here's the new you know, seven or 10 uh, data elements that are going to be required in order to fulfill this new found knowledge. The developer has that immediately, just starts to add on to that stub code they created the day before. The tester then integrates that. So again, it's just it's it's really with the focus on one thing. Everyone's talking about the same thing at the same time, and so it wasn't much of well, I say it wasn't much of much of a, a convincing shift that had to be made. But don't get me wrong, it took a couple months for teams to actually believe in it, to actually you know see the uh, the inputs as they were coming, as opposed to their individual part of the outcome they're producing. Very interesting question because it's. It's one of those things where, you know, part of it's just human psychology, right? You know, you get into a groove, you do a thing a certain way, and how do you change that focus? How do you change that psychology? And uh, yeah, just, uh, again, focusing on one thing collectively, and then, you know, you're no longer numbingly listening to everyone else's report that's disconnected from what you're doing. I don't care if you're working on, you know, the function of a button over there when I'm working on a report over here. That doesn't help me at all. There's no value in me hearing those words, right? (laughs) So... I think those things uh, influenced it more than anything is just, again, that, that, that clear focus. Dave, you've had some questions around single piece flow. And I, um, I appreciate where you went when you were asking about kind of the deployment model around supporting a team that way. You were talking about some, some, some Kubernetes and things like that. After this short discussion, has anything that we've talked about so far piqued your interest in terms of, hmm, this might be, might be valuable to try, or do you have a, uh, do you have other uh, other concerns? I think it is an interesting concept. And I think that there is value in being able to ship things quicker. I think that if a particular team has their stories fleshed out, because, I mean, let's face it, as developers, from a developer perspective, it's really annoying to get a list of requirements from your coworker to say that this is the feature that we need. We develop that feature as they have said, and then it goes to QA. Then QA goes back and talks to the BA. They're like, oh, no, no, wait, 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 wait. Uh, We meant to say this. This is what we want. And the developer just like throws their keyboard up in the air like, why didn't you tell me that then? So I think from that perspective, you have multiple eyes on the code, on the screen, browser, whatever, at the same time, so you're going to be able to catch those more instantaneously. So from that perspective, I think it's great. You know, it's kind of doing a live coding session slash test session all at the same time as things are getting done. And you're going to be able to catch mistakes a lot sooner before they happen. Not coding mistakes, but directional mistakes. So from that perspective, I think it's very positive. I think the adoption of it would be difficult for a lot of established teams or companies that have not yet gone even as far as away from the waterfall design. I think that those teams would really struggle implementing something like this, especially, you know, because I did DevOps for a number of years when the development and the deployment process in particular takes hours to do. So you have this one step that is just going to take so much more unnecessary time to accomplish. And I think getting all of those ducks in a row before you move to this kind of methodology. I think that in the end goal, that would be the ideal solution where you are developing fast and then also qualifying that this is correct and shipping it quickly. But you almost have to go through the Agile and the CICD steps first before you reach to this end result. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up a, a, you know, continuous integration and continuous delivery. When you start to get to a model of continuous de- deployment, continuous delivery, 
think about how important it is to get it right the first time. So, you know, you don't really have the luxury of, well, depending on how you develop your pipeline, you may build in those processes, but the shorter that, you know, the, those processes are, the better result you're going to get with the least amount of, of blowback and re- rework. So certainly, you know, getting everyone's opinion on making sure that, you know, although the requirement said that if I click button A, it produces value B, well, what if that, that was just the idea that the customer had of how to solve the problem as opposed to clearly articulating what the need was, right? And that's where we see these design uh, switchbacks happen a lot is where, you know, well, I, when I do this, I need that to happen. And when you really get into it, it's like, well, why do you need that to happen? Well, because I'm trying to produce X, Y, and Z. Well, what if you could do this other thing, you know, 10 times simpler and faster and still produce X, Y, and Z? Right. And these are the things that I think get, get caught much earlier with that cross-disciplinary view is, again, 360 view on, on how to think about the problem so you are producing the right, uh, the right thing at the right time. Yeah, and I think the one adversion that I would say, and without having practiced it, it's hard to say if this is a valid thought or not, but I'm sure you would be able to speak to that, is that essentially you're moving really fast. You're deploying a story, you're developing, deploying, testing a story really quickly, not necessarily in that order. But that could also increase technical debt from the perspective of other areas are going, they're getting ignored. The health of the application, the speed of it, other areas impacted. So I think in addition to adopting this methodology, you would also have to, every now and then, once a month or every other month, kind of take a step back to realign your priorities to see, did we introduce anything that we need to go back and revisit, slowing down the system here, or it's causing a problem over here, or we're starting to reach some maximum thresholds on this service that we either need to refactor or to go a different direction in? That's a, um, a good, good question. You know, in terms of uh, are we creating additional technical debt by moving this quickly without having the time to, you know, do the refactoring, to do the performance measures, uh, things like that. Again, kind of pointing back to one of the earlier points was everyone slowed down a little in what they're doing. Everyone, okay, including uh, developers, testers, all the way through the, through the, the stack of deployment of, of individuals. Everyone has just a little bit more time. And one of the earlier questions that we had to address is when they said, well, I'm going to be bored. What do I do with my time? Right? And so the way that you fill that void is by just having a steady list of these are the important things. When you have time, do these different things. And those are the different things where, you know, whether it's catching up on, you know, some historic uh, defects that need to be resolved or to go off and and make a performance improvement in an area or to um, go automate another piece of our delivery pipeline. Or, you know, so again, you, you actually create uh, nice little distractions in life of valuable things that can be done, uh, which actually reduced our technical debt over time, which was, uh, again, this was one of the, one of the most uh, unexpected findings when we started measuring it was just how much residual value was flowing out. You know, God, it used it used to take two and a half seconds for for us to transition. You know, from this page to that page, and uh, somebody's like, "Hey, you know, I I had a couple of hours yesterday. I went in there and took a look at it, and sure enough, I eliminated a redundant read, and we got that down now to you know less than uh, you know three tenths of a second. You know, so so things like that uh, we we found happening naturally, but it but it does take having a plan and direction for how to spend this new time because people aren't used to having time like that just free. Free time is like in between sprints, I ha- might have a little bit of time or mm-hmm. uh, post-deployment, I might have a little bit of time um, as opposed to a steady process of time showing up and then applying that to, uh, to, to again, create new, new value streams. Yeah, I think the whole thing is pretty interesting. So. I might have to dig a bit deeper into it to see how it can be successfully implemented into our team or in other areas. Yeah, and, and you know, interestingly enough, I don't think that this applies just to de- to dev teams. You know, look at look at any group that has more than two people producing one thing. It kind of seems to apply to um, all of those. 
You know, if you yeah. slow down and you focus on, you know, together collectively to produce an outcome and you know how to meaningfully uh, spend the time when uh, you have a little downtime, that just seems like a reproducible model in a lot of areas. Yeah. I think, I think construction, I think, uh, <laughs> I can, you know, anything that has more than two people working on the same outcome, right? You know, it's a funny story that you bring that up because I inadvertently followed the single piece flow at home with my kids one day. My wife was out of town. I'm like, you know what? We're going to clean up the entire house. Each kid has their own bedroom. Keep in mind, my kids are three, five, and six. So productivity right there goes down a hundredfold. However, <laughs> instead of having them each clean their own rooms, I said, we're all going to go into Ruby's room. I named one of my kids Ruby. And we all cleaned up her room. I vacuumed the other kids, like tried to make the bed, pick up clothes or toys. And we did that for each individual room throughout the entire house. And we were done by noon. Normally, this would have been an all-day adventure of me, you know, going back and forth in between each room saying, kids, clean your room. No, that's not how you do it. No, don't draw on the walls. No. So (laughs) this way, I kind of had the collective group that needed the direction and supervision of what the end goal needs to look like, all in the same room working together as one. That is an awesome story, Dave. Let me ask you one more question related to that. Do you think it was more fun for all of you to do it that way? It was more fun for them, for sure. (laughs) 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 For the management team, not so much. (laughs) Well, okay. Yeah, there are those those, those types. (laughs) That's an awesome story. It's funny because with my kids, my kids are uh, 14, 12, 11. Is she 11? She's 10. 14, 12, 10 eight and four and it would have been absolute bedlam because they would have been fighting with each other in the same room so <laughs> yeah at least my kids are young enough to still listen to me right now so <laughs> i think i have that advantage enjoy it while you have it <laughs> yeah yeah it goes away but it does come back it does come back at some point i've got uh, i got two boys 17 and 19 now and they're, they're best of friends and when they when they lock arms and they, they can commit to getting anything done well, the younger one's always complaining about the older one bossing them around, but they still get it done and uh, have a good time. So, <laughs> The oldest kids are never bossy. It's the younger kids that just don't understand. Okay. I'm, I'm just saying that as the oldest <laughs> in my family. So I'm the youngest of six. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm the oldest of 10. I outrank you. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway... Well, this has been really great. And hopefully some folks can uh, take some of these ideas and start implementing them. Is there a good place to start with this approach? Know where you're at. Start with measurements. You know, know, know how to measure how well you're doing analytically. Get the data. Study the data. Understand what about that data makes sense for you and your organization. And know what parts of it just make you twist your head slightly wondering, mm, I don't know if that's good enough. Because until you know how to measure where you're at, you will never know how to measure where you're, where you're getting to. And I think that goes for, well, <laughs> any process improvement you've got to, you, know, you can't fix what you can't measure, right? Yeah. But armed with that, you know, you, you also have to know the, just the, the, the size and capabilities of your team. You know, if, if you have one developer, one tester, and that's all you have, they're probably working this way anyway. If you have 150 developers, and you have, you know, 90 analysts, well, depending upon how your teams are, are structured and how the, the management of those teams go, it may make sense for some and may not for others. You know, I don't think there's any one thing that works for everyone. I do know that there are some management principles and ideals that, uh, uh, that can make a difference for, for each team. And so uh, I think it's important to not, you know, just assume that everything goes the way you want to finding teams that are willing to participate to try it out and prove things can really help with the adoption, you know, because then it's, it's not a management direction. It would be a team proven direction. So in terms of getting a, a larger groups uh, onboarded with, uh, well, any process change and something like this is pretty substantial, certainly would help. So there, there's a couple of key points. Good deal. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. 
We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. All right. Well, the last segment of the show is picks. You said you listened to some of our shows, so I'm assuming you understand the idea. I'm going to make Dave go first and give us some picks. All right. So my first pick is if you guys have listened to the show in the past, you know that I run servers out of my basement for fun and I host some things. And for the longest time, I've had an Apache gateway. So it's using uh, vhost for routing a single IP address to multiple different domain names. And I've recently switched that over to a Nginx reverse proxy. And it works exactly the same as the Apache one did, but I've just been really pleased on how easy it was to set up and get that going. So Nginx reverse proxy is my first pick. And what would be picks without a power tool, or in this case, a DeWalt ceramic rapid heat full-size glue gun? So... I had this really cheap Walmart brand glue gun that took like three minutes to five minutes to heat up before it would actually start gluing. And this sucker, I swear, it heats up in like 30 seconds. I'm ready to get going. It's 20 bucks, so it's relatively inexpensive. But I found myself using a hot glue gun a lot more now since this thing actually heats up in a reasonable amount of time. Nice. I'm going to step in here, I guess, with a few picks. I've been playing with Discourse again, um, which is the forum software. It's actually written in Rails. Really, really love it. So if you're, uh, if you're interested in setting up a forum, you can do it easily and quickly with Discourse. Just go to discourse.org and check it out. And uh, yeah, I guess I'll just leave that as my pick today. Sven, what are your picks? So I'll start with uh, with the bliss that is serverless. Um, so switching over, I've recently uh, completely decommissioned my Active Directory, and I'm running it uh, purely in Azure Active Directory without any infrastructure whatsoever. I can't tell you how much time that's saving me and how much less noise there is in my environment from not having to run uh, equipment. And the heat problem has suddenly disappeared because I'm not running those servers any longer. So um, in, in terms of uh, value in life, getting off of hardware wherever you can and letting somebody else run that hardware for you, I would say would be my first pick. And, I have uh, to disagree with that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. In a production instance, absolutely. But no one's taking my toys from me. You got to redefine your toys sometime. This is a new toy and it works different ways. And uh, finding ways to make it do everything that it used to do a different way yeah, that's two thumbs up from me. Uh, and uh, my, my, my second pick is going to... Uh, no, I think I have to leave it at the first one. I don't have a fully formed idea for the second. Good deal. If people want to find you online, Twitter, GitHub, things like that, where do they go? Yeah, so LinkedIn, uh, at Sven Ackerman Jr. I can be found there. Uh, last name is A-K-E-R-M-A-N. There's no C in it. Or you can look us up online at outlookinsight.com. Nice. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. And in the meantime, max out, everybody. All right. Thank you very much. It's nice to meet you, uh, Dave. And thank you, Chuck. Yeah. Thank you. Talk to you all later. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.